Thank you for tuning in to a Centerpoint Church message. Our mission is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We hope this message achieves that and inspires you to both grow in your faith and live it out today. Enjoy. Welcome to Centerpoint Church. My name is Aaron Master. I'm the pastor here. Our mission here is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We do here what any good Christian church should do, which is to help you connect with God in a worshipful way and help you grow in your relationship with Him. Our style, it just might be a bit different than what you're used to or different than other churches in the area, but we're still true to the Bible. We take God very seriously here and want to guide and encourage you in your weekly walk with God. This week, we're kicking off a new series that's called Carry the Torch. I don't know if it's just a man thing, but I love fire. I love fire. I love flames. It starts all the way with like you, the way you like light a candle. Like I had to get a mini torch, you know, like it's just way cooler than matches or like a normal lighter. And then like you, you have the propane torch. Yeah, I had to figure out a project so I could buy one of those so that I could own one. Yeah, that's, that's something I actually did. I like burning things. I like using cool, fiery things. I like the phrase, bigger is better, especially when it comes to flame and fire. Anybody with me on that with fire? As long as it's not your house, by the way. Yeah, that, that's not fun. But it starts all the way with how you start a fire. You can't just have, like, the normal lighter. You need, you need the torch. But one challenge in particular is keeping the flame going, right? Keeping that flame going. I mean, if you've ever been around fire, that's 90% of what all the guys are doing are sitting around the fire with a stick. They're poking at it because they're keeping the flame going. That's the main reason. And probably they're just playing with fire too. But a few months ago, my, my wife Sydney and I, we burned our old Christmas tree in a pit in our backyard. It was awesome. It was so awesome. I got my torch out, lighter fluid. Of course, you need both of those things with a giant dead pine tree. Not really, that was a bit overkill. And lit it, and this is kind of what it looked like. It was like, you started on fire, and then you just, you could hear it. 15 feet high flames. It was, it was actually a little scary, I'm not going to lie. I, I got a little nervous about the trees above it, but anyways, it was awesome to do. Now, it just fizzled out, though, and died once it was done. It was one flame. And then kind of a spotty fire that kind of came and goes. It would come and go. And it just kind of like sat that way for a long time. And I think that situation is similar for many of us when it comes to following God. A spotty flame. So today, and for this series, when we're talking about carrying the torch, we mean keeping the flame of faith of belief in Jesus and what he did and told us to do before our, end, before our time's done here on earth is what the torch is. And specifically, we're going to be addressing how do we keep it going forward? How do we carry that torch? How do we carry that flame? Because God wants it. It's in Psalm 145.4. He says this, One generation shall pass your works to another and shall declare your mighty works. Have you thought about that before? Like, are you carrying the torch of faith or in other words, living a life that has faith evident in it. In your family, is that one that does, or is, does your family do it? In your church, is your church doing it? Are you not really sure? Are you not really convinced of why you even should be doing it? What does it look like to carry the torch? And that's the question I hope to answer with the series. What does it look like to carry the torch of faith as an individual, as a family, and as a church? But before we can answer that, we got to ask and know, really, what is the torch? What is the torch that you're passing up? Like, what actually should Christians, a church, or a family be carrying and doing and pushing forward? 
to live aimlessly or to kind of just wing faith or wing church is never our goal here. There are clear directions in the Bible that a church and his people should advocate for that every Christian and every church should do. There's actually a network of churches that follow the basics of a monomic statement, what every church or what every Christian should do. Uh, and here's like some of the examples. These are the five areas of what every church should do. So there's, there's evangelism, uh, and there's fellowship, which is also known as community. There's discipleship, there's worship, and then there's ministry, which is serving. And then if you, what every church or what every Christian should do, put those in the category, that makes that statement. So worship, what every evangelism, church, which would be fellowship or community, uh, uh, do or sh- uh, serve as, as should and then is ministry and then do is discipleship. Every church person and family should worship, evangelize, have communion, serve others, and be a disciple. These are developed directly from scripture. And to carry the torch for God is to model each of these things in your daily life. Today we're focusing on worship and discipleship. And there's a story uh, in the Bible that shows the impact of these two super well. It's a well-known story that if you've been around in the church world for a while, I'm sure you've heard it. But today I want to give you kind of a whole new perspective on it that shows the impact of carrying the torch of worship and discipleship. Uh, It's a story uh, that's before Jesus' time in the Old Testament, actually all the way to the beginning book of the Bible. It's in Genesis, and it starts with this man named Abraham. A little background you maybe need to know about Abraham is God kind of called him out of the blue, randomly, and he said this in Genesis 12, 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. What he does is he says, I want you to leave. And he promises him more descendants than the stars, is what the scriptures say. And back then, that's what you want more than anything. You want a lot of descendants. More people meant more labor, it meant more wealth, it meant a family lineage that continues, and it meant your empire of your family is kind of building and can continue on. And also, it was something that Abraham and his wife Sarah struggled with. They weren't able to have children, and God promised to provide a child. Well, Abraham's like, deal, right? He's like, I'm in, deal. And he does. He follows God, goes, leaves his land, and goes to a distant land. But not without some ups and downs and shortcomings on Abraham's part. Because he's human. What we see is he lies to other kings uh, that his wife is his sister. Twice, actually. He had to get circumcised. Yikes, right? We'll talk more about what that means and why that's significant next week. Uh, he waited for a child. Still got nothing after years of God promising that. Got older, like 90 or 100. More time passes. He's getting older. Still no child. Decides to take matters in his own hands and has a child with his wife's servant, which was something God saw as dishonorable and not part of the descendants that he promised. But then, then finally, God appears to Sarah, his wife, and he says, you're going to have a baby. And it's been so long that how she responds is she laughs. She laughs about it. Listen to this dialogue in Scripture. I think it's just raw and real. I love it. It says this in Genesis 18, 13 to 15. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But then he said, Yes, you did laugh. It's like, a, it's like a sitcom, right? Like, it's like, you laughed. No, you didn't. Uh, yeah, I did laugh. No, you didn't. Like, it's just funny to see how real the Bible can be. Well, Sarah has this baby, 
and she names him Isaac at 90 years old. And Abraham was 100. And they continue to live and to live life. I want to pause there and ask, have you been there before? Like where you wanted this thing, this whatever it is for you, this thing for so long, it finally comes, not really in your timing, but comes, and then you're like, now what? Now what? What do we do now? For most of us, that happens, and our relationship with God forever is perfect, and we never doubt or struggle again. Note the sarcasm, right? That's definitely sarcasm. Not a chance. And it wasn't the situation for Abraham either. The scriptures then say, sometime later, God decides to test Abraham's faith. And this is the story we're looking at today. So in Genesis 22, 2, he says this. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. What? But he's supposed to have more descendants than, like, the stars. And he's, he's only got this one son. And wait, sacrifice? And that's kind of, really? That's weird. And why? Why, God? But what's interesting is we don't see Abraham questions it. The next verse, it literally goes into this. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. I want to pause there too. Have you ever been in a spot like that where, where God calls you out on something? Or brings you to your attention something you are doing that he wants different in your life. And it's just so obvious he's right that you don't even question it or fight it. I know I have. I know I have. Well, they're on this journey to Moriah. And when he gets close to the point, he leaves his servants behind. And this is what happens. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father. Yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord appeared out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Interesting, right? Intense. But it continues. It says, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And shortly after, a ram appears for the sacrifice. And they, Abraham and Isaac, sacrificed that lamb to God as an offering. Whew. It's an intense story, right? Really intense. Of obedience to follow through with what God wants, even though it's not what we'd want, to see if we'd put God first. It's an amazing story of worship. Our topic, again. And we see an example of what it looks like to worship God by being by being willing to offer up anything, by being willing to follow through with what God requests, by being willing to obey God, even if that means giving up our deepest desire. But not only that, as I've studied this story this week and over these past couple of weeks, there's also a possibility about it being this amazing story of discipleship, our other topic today too. Discipleship, it's this church word that simply means to follow and teach the commands of God. And we see Abraham is doing that for Isaac by teaching him God's ways, by going to the mountain with him, and by 
being the offering, right? By being the offering. But many biblical authors, or many biblical scholars, believe more so than what many of us think or know about this story. And before I tell you why, I want to just pause the story and take a little one minute break with you and just ask you this question. Is there ever playful roughhousing in your household? Anybody got like playful roughhousing in your house? Of course, right? Like, who's stronger in your house? Like, the teen, mom, dad, you, your husband, your spouse? Because as you age, right, it turns into kind of like an intense match of, re- of wrestling with tickling involved. I mean, I'm all about tickling both Sydney and Eliza. It's fun. That's my wife and my daughter. Um, there's, there's a fun little bit from one of my past favorite comedians. His name's Dane Cook, and he did it on this concept of kind of wrestling and tickling. Where It's 40 seconds long. We're going to give it a listen and uh, talk about it after. You know what I hate? The one thing I hated growing up more than anything else, I hated being tickled. <laughs> tickling is the worst because it started off fun, right? Tickling started, tickling, let's tickle. Started fun, ended horribly. Didn't it always escalate the same way? At first you'd be like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Cut it off, stop it, I'm gonna throw up. And they couldn't stop, they were like, I don't care. I had to punch my grandmother in the chest to get her off. As you age or as you get older, you can kind of punch anyone off if they start tickling you too much. But in our households, for real, I'm speaking to our teens out there or our teens in general. Who's stronger, you, your mom, your dad? With a teen, there's not a lot of tickling matches, probably for a lot of reasons. But in in all honesty, a teen nowadays gets pretty strong. Gets pretty strong. And let's change the dynamic a little bit, like a, a wrestling match in a sense. You versus your 100-year-old great-grandma or grandpa. You're pretty strong comparatively. Well, if we go back to our story, many scholars have a view on the Isaac and Abraham story. Again, Abraham's 100-plus years old. I don't care how old or who you are, but if you're 100, you're pretty old. You're pretty old out there, all right? But many scholars believe Isaac was actually in the age of 15 to 35 or 36, They state this by looking at the dates and timing of Sarah's death, his mother's death. They also bring in the facts that Isaac could carry all the wood for a human offering, the fact that he did a three to four day journey on his own, and the fact that he's self-aware enough to ask about what's going on with the sacrifice here. Forewarning, again, we don't know the exact specifics on his age. In this detail, it doesn't change the main teaching of the story of Abraham being tested. So I feel it's safe to use, but anyways... Many scholars suggest that since Isaac was much older and stronger, he also was tested at that moment. He also was tested himself and laid down willingly once he knew what it was for. As in, not only did Abraham show obedience of worshiping God first, but he also had discipleship of teaching his child the ways of God and carried the torch of obedience of God for his son or to his son who also was obedient. I mean, a 100-year-old versus a 16-year-old, I got to think about that as a possibility, right? 
Now, I'm not advocating for teaching your child to become a child sacrifice and give something or to give themselves up. That's wrong. God condemns that in Leviticus. But what I'm saying, though, is, is what if Abraham carried the torch of worship and taught Isaac the ways and teachings of God so well, discipleship, that, that he understood why and what needed to happen in that moment on the mountain and Isaac laid down his own life, right? It's an interesting perspective. It's a wow moment for me. Abraham carried the torch of worshiping God personally, but not only that, carried the torch to ignite Isaacs. Do you want that? Do you want that for others in your life? Do you want that for your family? How do we get to that point, like Abraham, or, or as a family, or, or as a church even? Because I don't know about you, but I want that type of worship and discipleship for myself, for my family, and for our church. Again, how about you? But there's one clear thing Abraham does with Isaac to show worship, and one clear thing he does to show discipleship. For worship to start, we see Abraham puts God first. I know this is like a cliche, churchy thing to say, but it's real hard to do, right? To put God first. It's, it's a command, though. It's a command, yet how many of us actually do it? Let's look at Matthew twenty two thirty six. 36. says, Teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law? Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. To worship something is to love fully. But not only that, God must be first. The first two uh, of the Ten Commandments are all about this. It's in Exodus 23 through 5. And it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Worship is having God first and to love him fully. Now, I don't think many of us are out there worshiping like other spiritual things or other spirits or other, other God-like things, but we do have a lot of physical gods or hypothetical gods in our life. For Abraham, his God was family. It was family. He doubted God's promise and ways. He chased getting a family, getting a child from another woman. But in God's timing, he eventually got it. Yet even getting what he wanted, he didn't necessarily ever realign his worship to put God first, which brought us to the testing moment with Isaac. For us, we could be very similar to him. It could be family, like Abraham, that is a, a God-like thing that maybe we put first. But I think for a lot of us here today, myself included, we have other gods, such as the God of money, the God of success, the God of stuff, the God of pleasure or sex, the God of power, the God of happiness. I'm guilty of pursuing or, or worshiping lots of these over God at times. And the list of gods could go on, right? I've gone through times where I've gotten so caught up in my head chasing after one of these and choosing it over anything else that it almost always brings me to a crash or a lack of fulfillment. Maybe you're experiencing that right now, today. Know that God has a remedy for you if that's you. But in those moments for me, it makes me run back to God after the crash. But then I usually repeat in some other area. That's not rightful worship or love of God first. That's not me following God's commands. And that's not me carrying the torch of faith as a Christian for both my family and my church. What's interesting, though, is almost all of those other gods, God wants us to actually enjoy each of those things in quantity. 
in quantity because he knows they can bring joy, but he knows they lead to destruction when they're put before him. So he gives us boundaries. Yeah, I know. Boundaries are actually a good thing or for our good. For example, money. Money can easily become a god. The thing we will honestly, depending on the amount, could potentially do anything for, right? At times, God has a boundary for it. It says, give to him first and give him 10%. In Malachi 3.10, it says this, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. A tithe is 10%. It's saying, give that. You giving to him is saying, I'm not going to let money become greater than you. If you can't give that up, then maybe that may be a worship problem for you. Here's another example. Success. Chasing success or what people think can become number one in our lives. God has a boundary for that. Proverbs 16.3 says this, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Sex or pleasure or some sort of addiction type thing uh, can literally become God's for us. God has boundaries for a lot of those. For example, the sex one, he has this one. But because of that temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Stuff. Getting stuff. That can become a God for us. We sometimes would do anything for that car, that house, that boat, that life. So God has a boundary for it. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants our love and worship first. And he gives us boundaries to make sure that happens because it prevents us from getting to that self-destruction point for ourselves. I don't know about you, but I don't really like boundaries. I'm not really a big fan of some of these. I didn't like it in the dating world, but I now know the baggage that comes with that. I don't like it in the success world, but I now know how destructive chasing success and how unfulfilling it is over pursuing God's ways. Uh, this maybe sounds even coming, kind of weird coming from a pastor, but I honestly don't really love like the whole money and stuff part about it either. But I know how addictive and greedy I can get when I see those as number one, as mine. This is one, actually, my wife, she's really assisted me on uh, and kind of carried the torch for us as a family. I'm going to be a bit real and raw with you for a second here. Out of college, uh, I, I worked at, at a church, and I started kind of like as an intern. I subbed, and I, I was a, a barista all at the same time. Um, and then quickly, it became full-time at that church. And I worked. I was single, again, like on my own. And I tithed, which was, again, giving 10%, because I wanted to be faithful. But it also was a church job, so I felt like I kind of had to, right? It was kind of like whatever. Um, I went from making like $8 an hour, like at my job in college to, whoa, I'm making like a lot more money now all of a sudden. And so it was like, cool, was, I can tie that. Like I already have a ton more money. But I was blessed super well over those years in the beginning. It was, it was amazing. I was blessed so well financially. But then a few years later, when Sydney and I joined Incomes, I married my wife, and it like doubled. It was like, whoa, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Like for God, really? It was like, that's like two international trips each year. We like traveling. Or, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
I could get a new four-wheeler this year, a new UTV next year, a motorcycle the following year. What else could I get? You know, and I start brainstorming. My eyes just went, instantly went to cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. God doesn't need that much. And my brain started scheming ideas, and I was clinging to the dream of things that I didn't even know I wanted. I think, I think we need a sea-do. Yeah, let's get one. But Sydney was the one that was like, Aaron, we're the worship God first. We're the tithe. Are we doing that? We're to be honorable. This is what God says. And just daydreaming about keeping the money was, was a battle. Her and I had to duke out a couple weeks, duking it out. Well, finally, I, I was like, you're right. You're absolutely right. We do need to give. Money got me, though. It got me in that Aladdin-like hypnosis, you know, like where you're just totally in a trance, or the Obi-Wan Kenobi, I feel like the force was on me or something. P.S. I'm a dad of a one-year-old. I watch a lot of Disney, so these are my examples. But it just showed how quickly my obedience and worship was to my desire and not God's. Of worshiping stuff and money, not God. Without Sydney's push and carrying the torch there, I would have probably struggled and probably would have crashed in the money area. Have you been there? Abraham has. He wanted a kid so bad. And God said he's going to get a child, but it didn't come in his timing. So he had a child with a different woman in a dishonorable way, and it kind of led to his destruction for a while there. Again, worshiped his desire of family over God's ways and timing. What's it for you? Where do you need to put God first that shows you are loving him more than anything with all your heart, your soul, your mind? For you, maybe, maybe it's like me. It's, it's with finances. For you, maybe it's your desire of stuff. Maybe it's, it's listening to God's direction on sex or pleasure or, or happiness or an addiction. Maybe it's realigning your definition of success to align with God's view of success. Is it in how you use your time? What's it for you? But not only that, what's the way you're carrying the torch of that? Again, to go off of my own struggle with money, for me it was easier to give because I saw my parents give. I remember as a kid, they'd always have like a check when we'd go to church. And they'd never let us see it. They'd, they'd, I have a sister, but they never let us see it. And it was like kind of weird. Like, come on, just let, let us see it. Like, they were weird. But one time I saw, I like kind of like snuck and I like opened it up and see it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean we can't go to lunch today? It's kind of like what I was thinking. I'm like, whoa, God won't mind. But I saw it modeled. I saw it modeled. The torch was carried. I, didn't, I don't mean to keep talking about money. Is you got to do what you think is right between you and God for money. Just as I would say with any topic God addresses, you need to look at Scripture and submit to what God is saying. And nonetheless, though, because of our topic, this was substantial for me. And I want my inner being, I want others in my life, my kids, to know that we, my family, the Damasters, worship God first in all areas of life. How about you? How about you? To realistically worship God first today, to do that, is to worship God in the ways he desires and to model it. Throughout scripture, you see he wants time with you. He wants prayer. Are people seeing that modeled in you by praying? Song and praise, coming to the church service, are people seeing that modeled in you? Offering of a skill of some sort, sacrifice, service, serving, are people seeing that modeled in you? Offering of your finances, are people seeing that modeled in you? Offering of your time in your day, are people seeing that modeled in you? Being put first, God wants that. Is he seeing that modeled in you by how you put God first over your pleasures or happiness or choices? And then with all those things, are people seeing those things done by you? 
which comes to the discipleship part of our story. Abraham made his faith known and visible. Abraham carried the torch of worship by following God's ways and teachings, but he also was a disciple of God. But not only that, we see that he discipled Isaac, his son. No matter what age Isaac was in that story, Isaac knew what they were going to do. He knew that they were going to do an offering. He didn't know that, that was, the offering was going to be him, like, and that he was going to be the sacrifice. Uh, maybe he withheld that because he was, probably would have been like, ah, there's no way I'm coming along on this one, on Dad. Um, but he knew about what the offerings looked like, what they did, what the sacrifices looked like. He went along to assist in the manner with, God, with, with his dad. And even after the event it was all said and done, Isaac continued to follow God. He carried the torch for his lineage. Discipleship is mentoring someone in their faith and intentionally equipping believers. We see Abraham does this and carries the torch of this by making his faith known and visible. Do people around you or in your family know that about you or have that view of what you believe? We have something in our state that shows an amazing picture of, of what God desires for discipleship and carrying the torch of faith. And uh, you'll probably pick up on it in just a second here. But the other day, someone was talking about Wisconsin, who they're, they're not from here, and they stated this. They're, they're stating some facts. They were like, there's this northern city with about 100,000 people, but it has a stadium that can fit 70,000 people. The streets are essentially empty once a week, and everyone in their homes are glued to the TV or at the stadium. Many people's families are part owners of this uh, team. Chips and salsa are sold out everywhere on Saturdays beforehand. One game can have a $15 million impact on the city. Green and gold is seen everywhere. Young and old alike are cheering, yelling, and excited about the Packers, right? The Packers. Y'all have seen it, the Packers. It's pretty crazy how devoted we can be. Now, although we never want to think of the way we, we as people cheer uh, and advocate for the Packers as, as worship or discipleship, but there is a lot of parallels in what we do for them and in how we pass things down that could be used for God as well, especially so with the Packers in particular as a team. I don't know if you know this, but the Packers, they're the oldest team in the NFL to have the same name and be in the same place. That shows there is dedication to the Packers by the people, by continuous generational dedication. They are also, they're the only NFL team owned by the fans, as in they're a nonprofit. Again, that doesn't happen unless people are for the Packers. The family game nights, they have those like before the season starts. They're usually like meh for most teams, but for the Packers, they're a big deal. People like go to them. It's like huge. These things don't happen unless you're carrying the torch of being a Packer fan, right? To others, carrying that torch to others. I mean, just think, as a Packer fan or living in this area, you, you naturally just kind of become one. You are either taught in your family or learn real quick by studying on your own that cheese heads are a must, right? You learn that real quick. Cheese heads are a must. You, you learn that hunting gear is totally acceptable for Packer apparel. You also learn that there must be some sort of love for, for Favre, at least past love for Favre. You, you have to visit Lambeau at some point. This is a must. And you also have to have like kind of a dislike for Bears and Vikings fans, right? These are traditions that are many times passed down, taught, and modeled. Are you doing that for God? Are you doing those type of things for God? Abraham's servant knew his belief. And Abraham's son not only knew his belief, but potentially sacrificed for it if nonetheless 
carried it on afterwards. They knew the traditions of Abraham. How did Abraham pass that on? How did he do that? He had people participate with him in the things. He had people see the things he was doing. He explained it to people. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? To your friends, your family, let them participate. Here at Centerpoint, we're all about trying things, whether it's your first time at church or hundredth time. Try something out. Try something out with a friend. Are you letting people see the way you worship? Do they see you reading your Bible, serving? Do they see you giving? Do they see you making a choice that worships God before anything else? Are you explaining it? Are you explaining it to them? Do they know why you do what you do? Do they know that they can learn from you and that there's no question is too dumb to ask? There's no, there's no assumptions. These are things that we are all about as a church, but hope that you are doing as individuals and as families. It's following through with the last thing Jesus commissioned us to do. As we wrap up, this is it. Matthew 28, 17, 20, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We see they worshipped and they were to make disciples. As we close, I want to challenge you to think of the ways you are worshiping. Is God first? And if not, what needs to change? And then discipleship. Are you following the ways of God? And are you teaching through your actions, through your openness, through your explanations? What needs to change to do that better for you? I'm going to pray in a second that we carry the torch and keep the flame going of worship and discipleship. But I'm assuming there's a few people here, maybe, who feel like it's just been too long since they've worshipped or followed Jesus' ways. You maybe feel like the torch is long gone. That's you. Know that God wants to draw near to you. In James 4, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When you're close to the flame, it doesn't take long to catch on fire. Draw near to Jesus. Ask for forgiveness of your mess-ups and pursue him in his ways. And it won't be long for you to become a torchbearer again. You can pray to ignite your faith by asking for forgiveness and asking him to lead your life. You're a torchbearer. You're a Christian. I'm going to pray for us all to carry the torch in worship and discipleship. Would you pray with me as we close? Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for the example of Abraham and Isaac, showing us how worship of putting you first is, is so important. It's what you want. And it's also protecting us at the same time, protecting us from, from destruction of our own selves. God, I just pray that uh, you, you help us do that well. Help us become disciples of you, but also teach others through our own discipleship, of having others come to know you through what we're doing, what we're explaining, what we're modeling. Help us do that this week. God, uh, some of us right now, we, we want to carry the torch. Help us carry the torch of, of faith for our family, for our friends, for our church community. Help us do that well this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple quick announcements.